0: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your
1: offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China, with our indispensable daily newsletter, website, and growing range of podcasts and videos. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. Today, it's part two of our interview with Kishore Mabubani, who served as UN ambassador for Singapore for many years. Professor Mabubani is a noted scholar and author of many books, including the one we're discussing in these episodes, a book titled Has China Won? The Chinese Challenge to American Primacy. Last week, we talked a bit about how the COVID-19 pandemic might have changed what he had written, about the U.S.'s lack of a coherent long-term strategy for dealing with a newly powerful China, about the difference between China and the Soviet Union during the era of the Cold War, about the fate of the U.S. dollar, and many, many other topics. Today, we plow ahead first by talking about the difficulty of achieving both freedom and equality, and then move into an in-depth discussion of American exceptionalism and the blinkers that our guest believes exceptionalism places on the ability of the American strategic thinking establishment to, well, think strategically. Enjoy. You were talking about freedom and equality as sort of the twin pillars on which sort of American political culture is supposed to rest. American ideals are supposed to aim for the, these two things. Something that was really influential in my own studies of history was a slim volume by Will and Ariel Durant called The Lessons of History, which they wrote at the end of that that mammoth series, the, the story of civilization that they did. And one of its critical insights and it shows up throughout this whole series is that freedom and equality are implacable foes because people are naturally endowed with different gifts, different intellectual gifts, different physical gifts, different you know accidents of birth or, or fortune and some people are more industrious and some people less so uh, indivi- at an individual level. So if a society is free, those inequalities are allowed to express themselves, and they express themselves in the accretion of wealth by and and power by those with the advantage. Uh, So equality, though, necessarily suppresses those natural inequalities. Uh, So uh, they, they see history as sort of a constant sort of swing between these two. And you make a very strong case that the United States is at one ridiculous extreme of, of freedom at the expense of equality. Um,
0: Just very quickly, it's not at the expense uh, of equality. I'm gonna, of course, you know I think Will and Ariel Durant got it right, absolutely right, that freedom and equality are at loggerheads, because in, in freedom, basically, you have a kind of Darwinian struggle uh, and, of course, the best of the species, the fittest of the species rise to the top and the weak ones sink to the bottom. Equality tries to say, hey, let's try and uh, mitigate this mm-hmm. Darwinian struggle and do something about it. But I want to emphasize, and this is I hopefully something I'm surprised so few Americans are observing, that what was supposed to happen is that in, the, in your economic capitalist system, you allow the fittest to thrive you allow creative destruction and the strong companies strong capitalists to thrive but in the in the political system was supposed to ensure through the one person one vote that that bill gates vote had the same impact as the man living in the in bronx mm-hmm. in new york unfortunately and this is a critical insight i bring in my book huh? The, the rich in America have been able to use their money to hijack the political system of United States. who right. Money, and therefore enable it to deliver decisions that benefit the top 0.1% and undermine the bottom 50%. And by the way, I think the, 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 the top 0.1% are being unwise in using their money to hijack the political system because it's better for the political system for the majority to feel the sense of ownership of the political system because that gives it a long term stability.
1: And you make that argument, yeah, that yeah that's what,
0: that's, that's what the founding fathers had in mind and that's what Rawls speaks about. And so this fundamental deviation from the vision of the founding fathers, this fundamental deviation from the ideas of John Rawls shows exactly where United States has gone wrong. And this is what the United States should be focused on today and not trying to take on this geopolitical contest against China because that's not where the real challenges are. The real challenges are not across the ocean, the real challenges are in the american
1: heart and one of the great impediments to that sort of sober self-assessment um uh, is is this chapter you, you you write about the whole chapter you devote to the assumption of virtue right uh which i think is one of the the really core chapters of this book uh what is it i mean this is something that i think a lot of americans are going to find very very hard to read and very bracing i think optimistically uh what is it that Americans have fundamentally wrong about themselves?
0: As you know, the 20th century uh, was the American century. And as you know, as I said earlier, America has triumphed in every great struggle from World War I to the end of the Cold War. And so Americans have the view that Americans are an exceptional people. And so therefore, whatever they do by definition is virtuous and good. But as you know, I I don't quote any foreign political scientists. I quote America's great political scientists, like, for example, John Mearsheimer in his book, uh, The Great Delusion, points out, and I'm surprised not more Americans have read his book, that is actually the liberals in America are the most violent uh, people. They believe in using military means to export liberal values, and they end up killing lots of people. And he gives the data on that, which is shocking and stunning. So, you know, as I say in my book, if you ask yourself a simple question, which country has killed more innocent Muslims? Is it China or is it America? Most Americans believe China, of course, has killed more innocent Muslims, but the data shows it is America uh, that has done so. And that's why, as you know, I also attach in the book as an appendix, an essay by Steve Watt points out that uh, what the Americans believe about themselves doesn't square with the truth of what uh, United States has been doing. And, I, and I, again, I'm, I'm pointing this out because I think it is in America's national interest to stop fighting unnecessary wars in the Islamic world because as I say, if you, let's say America spent $5 trillion fighting this unnecessary illegal war in Iraq. Just imagine it, that $5 trillion dollars had been given to the bottom 50% in uh, America, each American in the bottom 50% would have received a check for $30,000.
1: Right.
0: So why, why are you burning away $30,000 from each American uh, in Iraq and why not give it to them? That's why Eisenhower you know, said very, very wisely in 1953, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he said, every dollar we spend uh, on, a, on a tank, on a naval vessel, on a fighter jet is a dollar that we are stealing from the poor in America. Hmm. He put it very simply. So, so I'm basically, I, I'm just repeating the wisdom uh, of America's founding fathers and America's great presidents. And, 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 and Americans have lost sight of what their founding fathers and great presidents were telling them in the
1: past. One of the things that I find really vexing when I, I talk about China in the United States with a lot of my American friends uh, is this: there's this persistent uh, tendency to compare Chinese realities and all their, their, you know, their, their ugly, you know, truths, t- not to American realities, but to American ideals. That's always sort of the basis of comparison and and the American will always default to that uh, it's it's very frustrating and you point to a dozen different examples of this throughout the book uh, without you know calling it this this problem but you also See this persistent faith in the essential soundness of American democracy as a real source of strength. And as you said earlier, of stability. Uh, can you explain how that works? How is it that the, the trust Americans have ultimately in, in maybe the, the institutional or the, the, maybe the, the ideals, at least, if not in the praxis, uh, of the, of their political system makes it much less brittle than an authoritarian system?
0: Oh, of course. And I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, again, as a hard-headed realist, you have to acknowledge that the uh, American political system, despite all its current flaws, is more stable and secure uh, over the long term because you you, you do not know. Uh, I mean, I can tell you who will be the president of China in uh, <laughs> 2021. It will be Xi Jinping. Right. I cannot tell you who will be the president of America in 2021. It will be Trump or Biden, I guess. You know, but uh, at the same time, the uh, the democratic system creates long-term stability, which is America's uh, big strength. So, for example, uh, if you ask yourself, uh, what will America's political system be like uh, 50 years from now, in the year 2070, I won't be around, I guess. But it'll be something similar to the democratic system they have today. Although I suspect they would have found ways and means of uh, curbing the plutocracy that has developed right, right. Uh, in in America today. Overturned
1: citizens' united, in, in the, case, in the right.
0: case of China. I don't know what China's political system will be like 50 yeah. years from now because it will have to it will have to adapt and change. And when China develops the world's largest middle class, which is already happening, then its political system has got to change, has got to adapt. And as I say in the book, uh, the biggest challenge that President Xi Jinping faces is who will succeed him? And there's no doubt that uh, I I think he will do a very good job for China. But uh, after he goes, who will succeed him? How do you ensure a wise ruler after that? And so that's a very unique challenge that... uh, 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 Communist Party systems uh, face. And so we got to acknowledge that this is one area where America has a, a competitive advantage over China.
1: you talked about the, the the meritocratic mechanisms, and I think a lot of people would have a lot of, of, of issues with that characterization of it. And let's call it an, an imperfect, uh, but at least ideally meritocratic system of advancement. Do you not think that that also pertains to to the person at the very top of the organization, I and mean, we look at somebody like CGP, uh, you know, it, it's simply the truth that um, when they are selected, and they are certainly not elected, but they're selected, there are people who've run, either as governor or as provincial party secretary, at least two major provinces, and usually a major municipality, provincial-level municipality on top of that. They have had cabinet-level positions. They have uh, risen up from... Uh, they're they're usually people with some some objective accomplishment, no?
0: You know the the Chinese political system. I, I mean, it's very difficult to speak about it because quite a, as you know, Kaiser, neither you nor I know what go, what goes on inside the party. But I, I want to make one small qualification here. I wouldn't say that Xi Jinping was selected. Uh, I think he was also elected. Because, you know, he suffered through the cultural revolution. Uh, and so it's important to emphasize that because he understands what chaos is all about, too. And then he just didn't rise to the top. He had to, yes, you know, he was sent to run some different provinces. And he had to do well in his job and had to do well in the internal party elections. So there are internal party elections uh, that go on, too. So there is within the party uh, a fairly strong competitive uh, process uh, that takes place. And as you know, his leadership marks a transition because before him, Hu Jintao was selected, if I'm not mistaken, uh, as part of the processes uh, and the succession processes to uh, Deng Xiaoping. So after Chiang Siu Min, we knew that uh, Hu Jintao was going to uh, take over. But Xi Jinping was not selected by Deng Xiaoping or Jiang Zemin. It was a competitive process uh, that resulted in him uh, getting to the top. So he's, he's, a, he's, he's somebody uh, who's wily, uh, politically wily. If he wasn't, he wouldn't have got to where uh, he is today. And certainly in terms of experience in running uh, major organizations, the Chinese leaders by and large uh, are more competent Uh, doing these things because they've had lots of experience. By contrast, some of the way in which Americans are selected, you get sometimes very incompetent people being put in charge of very important jobs, and that's dangerous.
1: Right, and we see that today. Although we could say the same thing about, I mean, we had a freshman senator uh, who had only been a state senator in Illinois as our previous president. He happened to be a a very competent, very cool-headed and smart man. Uh, and also a moral man, but uh, in, in in a lot of sense, uh, yeah, there's maybe there is of course as much to be said. I want to be mindful of your time, but I I have so many other questions I want to ask you. So I want to move on from this. This is a, a, another important piece. So what the rest of the world thinks, there are a lot of countries now that, that feel like they're in, in, in the awkward position of being forced to choose sides, you've talked about 193 countries in the world, 191 of them are not the United States and are not China. Uh, and as you said, there were, are over 120 of them that for whom China is their major trading partner we said at the beginning of this conversation that you being neither of China or the U S is kind of an, an advantage in your achieving a kind of detachment affords you maybe a better view of this contest. So let's talk about uh, the other countries. You pose a great question at the beginning. Can you say of those other 191 countries, which country is swimming in the same direction as most of them and which is swimming against? And that's not an easy question for a lot of Americans to confront, mm-hmm. you have an answer to that.
0: Yeah, well, I think you know that. that as I say, at the end of the day, the uh, outcome of the U.S.-China geopolitical contest will be decided not not so much by the 330 million people in America or the 1.4 billion people in China, but also by the six billion people who live outside. And the six billion people who live outside, there's one clear message that comes through most of them. It's just this, you know, if you two guys, if you want to go and slug it out, go slug it out, don't get us involved.
1: (laughs) Right, right.
0: We want, certainly we want to work with the United States uh, where we have a mutually beneficial. So we want to trade with the United States. We want to learn from American universities, but we also want to trade with China. And we also want to get we want to get american investment we want to get chinese investment we don't want to rely on one or the other uh and so that that is the attitude of uh, most countries in the world, so unlike in the first Cold war where a lot of countries actually genuinely willingly enthusiastically uh supported the United States like the western european countries uh like australia like Canada and so on and so forth. No, they're all, uh, with the possible exception of Australia under the present government, they're all saying, hey, we, we, can, we cannot burn our bridges with China too. We have uh, important stakes in China. So, I'll give you a concrete example Germany, <coughs> which has benefited so much from the United States uh, Marshall Plan and American markets uh, since World War II. For Germany today, the Chinese market for its auto, automobiles is bigger than the american markets how do you expect germany to abandon a major market for its automobiles? so if if america tries to force other countries to choose like for example in the 5g technology it may find that the answers may not be to its liking right because as i say in the book the capacity of either u.s or china to cajole or bribe or, or or arm twist other countries into following them is diminishing over time.
1: We could do sort of a grand tour and look at some of these other major geographies, uh, Western Europe, Central and Eastern Europe. Well, let's start with one that I think you single out and you just mentioned as being a possible outlier, one that is really maybe on the horns of the most difficult dilemma, and that's Australia. Let's talk about the Australian conundrum right now.
0: Well, I, I think there's absolutely no doubt if there's one country in the world that would be the most painfully affected by a downturn in US-China relations uh, is Australia. Because, you know, Australia's uh, is a Western country. Its heart and soul is linked to America. Uh, it is defended by America. In fact, uh, President George W. Bush once described Australia as the deputy sheriff of America <laughs> uh, in the neighborhood. The Australians didn't like the term at the time, but they but not necessarily unhappy. And yet their economy is tied primarily to China. You know, uh, there's no way in which the United States is going to import all the uh, iron, ore, uh, aluminum, steel, coal, whatever it is that is exported from uh, uh, Australia to China. So the Australians have to, will have to commit economic suicide, uh, if they decide to join the United States 100% against uh, China, and yeah, I must say that uh, most of the previous uh, Australian governments actually tried very hard to be careful, but uh, the present one uh, seems Scott Morrison, yeah, uh, seems to be running into some challenges. And an Australian asked me, why is that happening? I said uh, another one of the oldest rules of geopolitics is never pull the tail of a tiger.
1: Right, So
0: Australia has been pulling the tail of the tiger, and that's dangerous.
1: Indeed. Uh, Let's move north to Japan, another one where I think things have played out differently than one might have expected. Uh, And that is one where I think the COVID-19 pandemic has has had a pretty significant impact. Uh, We've seen... Uh, I mean, we could even call it a rapprochement between uh, Abe and Xi Jinping.
0: Well, as you know, the Japanese-Chinese relationship is fascinating. Uh, It goes back over a thousand years at least. And the important thing to remember about them is that for most of the 1,000 years, except for a few wars here and there, the the relationship has been a peaceful one. Of course, they uh, went through 50-50 horrendous years, from 1895 in the Sino-Japanese War and Japan defeated China uh, up to 1945 when Japan lost World War II. So for 50 years, uh, Sino-Japanese relations were very difficult, very painful. So the big question that China and Japan have to address in the 21st century is whether or not their 21st century relationship will be based on what happened over a 50-year period, which was painful, all will be based on the thousand-year period, which was relatively peaceful. So there will be very subtle adjustments that both sides will be making towards each other. It will be like, almost like Japanese kabuki, you know. Hmm. It's so slow, you can, you're, trying to, you're trying to figure out what the hell is happening. <laughs> uh, so that's a dance that most Americans cannot see. Right. But my sense is that a new dance is beginning. It will require a lot of restraint on the part of China. Uh, Because the Chinese sometimes have gone uh, uh, to some extremes in Bashing, Japan, and I think unwisely so. So the Chinese will have to learn to exercise some restraint, and the Japanese will have to learn to show some understanding. So it will be a very slow, subtle dance between the two. Uh, that is uh, at play here and it'd be wiser for United States not to get involved
1: in this dance I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your own home territory about ASEAN uh, which again has been a, a very fraught one and with with it's very much caught on the, on the horns of a, of a dilemma as these two tigers fight.
0: Mm. Oh you're absolutely right and you know by the way that's also why I wrote a book uh, called The ASEAN Miracle that was yeah. published in uh, 2017 on the Uh, 50th uh, anniversary of uh, ASEAN, and uh, I'm actually surprised that so few uh, Americans are aware of how amazing ASEAN is as an organization, how it has brought about peace and prosperity in one of the most diverse corners of planet Earth, because out of 650 million people in the ASEAN countries, You have about uh, 220 million Muslims, 150 million Christians, 150 million Buddhists, Hinayana Buddhists, Mahayana Buddhists, Hindus, Taoists, even communists. So the most diverse region of planet Earth has delivered peace and prosperity. But the most important thing that Americans need to know about the ASEAN region is that there are huge reservoirs of goodwill towards America in Southeast Asia. Absolutely. And and so many American secretaries of state have wasted their time in trying to get involved in Middle East conflicts from which America has got burned so badly and benefited nothing. And so many American secretaries of state have skipped meetings in ASEAN where there's far more goodwill towards America. So this is an example of lack of strategic thinking uh, that Americans need to revisit and ask themselves what they can do to re, to, uh, to strengthen the reservoirs of goodwill that already exists in ASEAN towards America.
1: I imagine that a lot of people hearing you say that uh, when they talk about leveraging ASEAN and that reservoir of goodwill, immediately they think of the South China Sea. But your thinking on the conflict in the South China Sea between the United States and China Again, is quite a radical departure from conventional wisdom among the so-called, you know, strategic thinking class in the United States. Can you walk us through your arguments? You actually see convergent interests. You see no need for conflict. You make an argument, um, that China did not, in fact, as has become almost conventional wisdom, break a promise not to militarize islands in 2015. Walk us through that for us. Well, I
0: think, you know, one of the things I've learned, uh, there's a word called MEM, M-E-M-E, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can not spread. Meme, you know? sure. mm-hmm. uh, and these memes can spread very quickly. And one of the memes that has spread is that Xi Jinping uh, made a promise not to uh, militarize the islands in South China Sea. And then subsequently, he broke his promise. He militarized the South China Sea. And therefore, Xi Jinping was lying. And until today, very well-informed Americans believe this meme, which is actually not true.
1: (laughs) And as I say
0: say in the book, what happened was that when President Xi Jinping met President Barack Obama, and this is not my insight, this is an insight given to me by one of America's most distinguished uh, former ambassadors to China, Ambassador Stapleton Roy, who said to me, Kishore, when when President Xi Jinping offered to demilitarize the South China Sea, it would have been wise for the the Americans to immediately seize this offer and say, yes, let's demilitarize South China Sea. He said, instead, after Xi Jinping made that offer, the United States rebuffed that offer and sent U.S. naval vessels uh, to the South China Sea. And the Chinese said, okay, if you reject my offer and if you want to militarize the South China Sea, okay, I'll join you.
1: So it was conditional then. it was a cond- So
0: this, 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 is, this is something that, uh, this was a great opportunity that uh, United States had and that was missed. And at the end of the day, when it comes to freedom of navigation in the ocean, which is what United States says, it is protecting in the South China Sea. Now, the South China Sea makes up less than 5%, I don't know, less than 3% of the world's oceans. Today, China is the number one trading nation in the world. China needs freedom of navigation more than the United States of America does. And ironically, when the U.S. Navy uh, goes around the world protecting freedom of navigation, it is protecting freedom of navigation for Chinese exports and Chinese imports. (laughs) That's a big paradox. So there is no no contradiction at all uh, between American interests and Chinese interests in freedom of navigation. So if both sides really want to find an understanding, they can find an understanding. But of course, if you're looking for a ways and means of embarrassing China, then of course the United States will use South China Sea to embarrass China.
1: To continue to conduct phone ops. and. Yeah.
0: What is interesting is to, at the end of the day, this is a dispute not between the United States and China. This is a dispute within China and the four other ASEAN countries that are claimants, Vietnam, Philippines, Brunei, Malaysia. These are the these are the five countries that have to work it up.
1: You actually you talk about the number of islands that are the Spratleys and the Paracels. Uh, do you happen to remember your, your statistics when you were you were talking about the Filipino claims? The
0: no, I I, I what I can tell you is that the Chinese occupy the least number of uh, uh, territories uh, in the South China Sea. And in fact, another key point is that it was not wasn't the Chinese who started this practice of reclaiming land around reefs and atolls uh, unfortunately uh, it was philippines vietnam and malaysia which started it and of course the, the, the tragedy there is that in philippines malaysia and vietnam can claim 20 acres the chinese can claim 2000 acres <laughs> All
1: right. so it's simply the scale the
0: game it's a game they shouldn't have started it was mm-hmm. a very unwise
1: um, let's let's finish our conversation about this book uh, with a series of questions, you, you've talked about how the first step to formulating strategy is to frame the right questions. And really early into your book, in fact, in the, in the introduction, you, you present 10 questions of enormous consequence that we should all be very soberly pondering if we want to formulate a realistic strategy with China. Now, having read the book, I feel like I have a sense for how you would want America to be able to answer Meanwhile, of course, we fall very short in a lot of regards. Uh, having written the book now, having talked to it doubtless with, with a lot of different interlocutors from different countries, you probably have a better sense for how ready Americans really are to, to grapple with these these issues. So I want to put them to you. I, I want to get you to talk about where American elites are right now in working through these and whether you know maybe if they're in deep denial still whether the covid-19 pandemic has maybe lent some clarity has been clarifying in some way uh but let's do this as kind of a lightning round <laughs> and and try to answer it economically even though these are big questions i'm just your your distilled wisdom on these things so the first question is really it's a huge one about whether the us can readjust to a future uh, where china's economy will be as it inevitably will be larger than america's uh and it's already the case in terms of purchasing power parity uh you ask what changes need to be made that's the that's a central central question here so sure is the u s ready to reckon with this soberly and make those changes that you think need to be made
0: well uh you know what's interesting uh Kaiser is that in the reactions to my book. Uh, I would say the more thoughtful Americans and uh, and also friends of America, I'll give you two examples, like Martin Wolf of the Financial Times, who's probably mm-hmm. the most influential economics columnist in the world, or, or Farid Zakaria uh, of CNN, GPS. Uh, you know, when the, these are, of course, very thoughtful people. And when they read my book, uh, they told me, they said, you know, that I was raising the, key questions. And as you know, Martin Wolf has given me a wonderful endorsement. Farid Zakaria made it the book of the week in his CNN show. I think that the more thoughtful Americans understand that I'm raising the right questions uh, that Americans have to answer. But of course, uh, when you raise the right question, I also step on some sensitive toes. So it's, it's very puzzling that even though by a very elementary rule of mathematics, very elementary rule that if the Chinese keep growing at 7.5 percent, which is not unreasonable, and
1: if America not this year, maybe but <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, of course not this year. No, but we're talking about you know we're talking about decades. We're not talking sure. about years. Uh, there'll always be ups and downs. So it, just to put it simple mathematics: if China can keep growing at 7.5 percent a year. And if China, and if the United States can grow at 2.5 percent, which is a very healthy rate of growth, by the way, for America, 2.5 percent, uh, within 10 years or so, China's GNP will become bigger.
1: <laughs> Nominal GDP will be bigger, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, really. So you know, it's just simple mathematics. Now, of course, uh, if China collapses, and many, many in America continue to believe that China is about to have, uh, have a great collapse. And if it collapses, I, if I was American, I wouldn't worry about it. But you should, as a strategic thinker, never plan against the best-case scenario for you, which is a collapse of China. You've got to plan against the worst-case scenario for you, which is that China actually outperforms. You know, And if China outperforms and grows at 7.5%, and if its currency strengthens, eh, which is possible, eh? mm-hmm. then the nominal GDP gap between China... And U.S. can become very significant now. Let me emphasize another point. Okay, the the Chinese uh, per capita GDP is only ten thousand, now, right? Right. Now, yeah, let me um, you know the the Japanese have hit thirty forty thousand. The South Koreans have hit twenty thirty thousand. Singapore has hit over sixty thousand. So the, it's not unreasonable for the uh, Chinese to reach a per capita GDP of 30,000. Now, if the Chinese reach a per capita GDP of 30,000, the Chinese economy will be twice the size of America's economy, right. twice. Now, don't you, then don't you therefore have to begin to think about how do I manage this? Now, do I add more aircraft carriers to my fleet to deal with a much bigger economy. And if I do that, am I not making the mistake that Soviet Union made, which is to focus on the military contests and not on the economic contests? So I'm actually advising the United States to think strategically and realize that this is not a game about defense expenditures. And the biggest mistake the United States is making now is to increase its military expenditures. And that's not where the challenge is going to come. And, you know, as I say in my book, the reason why the United States keeps increasing its military expenditures is because its decisions are not made on the basis of rational calculations on the next war you're going to fight. No, 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 no. It's based on which congressman wants to preserve which jobs in his district or
1: which country
0: Now, that's not how you carry out a, a defense budget, but that's
1: how it's done. Indeed, that's that's sort of answering that the third of the questions. But let's let's do the second one very quickly, which I think is actually the most compelling question, which is ultimately this. I mean, and, and you have been talking about this. Should the U.S. goal be to preserve primacy or to improve the lives and ensure the well-being of, of of American people? Presumably, you think that it's unlikely that America will be able to have both. So are American elites confronting this question in any kind of a meaningful way? Have they decided? Primacy?
0: I would say that the, the thoughtful Americans uh, are aware that this is the challenge. Uh, but I would say the American elites, I mean, if you talk to, let's say, the senators and congressmen, for example, their their thinking has been... Uh, very much, uh, uh, I guess if I want to use an unkind word, has become fossilized uh, in Cold War language. And where they've assumed that, you know, uh, uh, America's primary goal should always be to remain number one in the world. It's
1: non-negotiable. But
0: the question is, why? I mean, if if remaining number one in the world means that the American people have a worse standard of living and the average income of the bottom 50% goes down, how does that benefit the American people? So that's why I emphasize, should the primary goal of American strategy be to improve the well-being of the American people or to preserve American primacy? Now, at a time when America was by far the richest country in the world, at the end of the World War II, it had over 50% of the world's GNP, there was no... No contradiction between these two goals. Now, increasingly, there will be a contradiction. So, every war you fight overseas is, as I, as Eisenhower would said, every tank you spend money on, every jet fighter you buy, every navy ship you buy, you're stealing money from the poor in America.
1: It's guns. So, and my butter.
0: argument is that is, it's better to take care of the poor in America first. I'm not saying America should disarm or whatever, and so on and so forth. But you don't, you don't need a uh, to spend more on defense than the rest of the world combined, which is what you were doing at one point in time. There's no, there's mm-hmm, no reason mm-hmm, for doing mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not the only scholar who points this out. I mean, Steve Wall, John Miersheimer also point out as the realist, that America should, should, shouldn't should fight unnecessary wars.
1: There's actually a lot of people who are moving. I mean, I, I think you probably saw the issue of foreign affairs with the that uh, set of, of essays that were written. Uh, Stephen Wertheim's was uh, a very good one that I would commend. Uh, I think there are a lot of people, especially affiliated with the Quincy Institute, who are now really thinking seriously about these questions. Um, A a fourth question that, that you ask is about American alliances, about the support of other countries. And maybe we can distill it down for the time being, for the purposes of this discussion, to will the U.S. have a compelling alternative to Chinese initiatives like the Belt and Road Initiative? And I think we can also speak of RCEP.
0: Yes. Yeah, and I think the, the key point here is that in when the Cold War started, it was easy uh, for the United States to accumulate allies because the, it was, a, it was like, a, like a black and white world, you know. Mm-hmm. The Soviet mm-hmm. Union was a menacing military power, threatening lots of countries uh, like Europe, like the Shah of Iran. Uh, and indeed, as you know, in the Cold War, and I must emphasize this, uh, China became an ally of the United States for all practical purposes.
1: That's correct, yeah.
0: So it was a black and white world. Now, we no longer live in a black and white world, and China doesn't have uh, any dreams of trying to dominate the world, conquer the world in the way that the Soviet Union did. Uh, the Chinese don't understand why Americans are spending money fighting unnecessary wars. The Chinese will not do that. And the the Chinese, the, the primary Chinese objective is exactly the opposite of the Americans, which is to improve the well-being of the Chinese people and to revitalize Chinese civilization. Hmm. And so if they're trying to revitalize Chinese civilization, there's no necessary contradiction between what America is doing what what the, what the rest of the world is doing. So that's why many in the rest of the world don't see China as a direct threat to them and therefore are willing to work with China. So, for example, when the United States uh refused to sign on the Belt and Road Initiative. I think on the last count, over 100 countries did so, mm-hmm. including a, a G7 country like Italy. Uh, so it's a different world. So the, the elites in America must take off their black and white lenses and use the multicolored lenses that my book provides to understand this
1: world. The, the The fifth big question really was about the u s dollar and when we've already talked about that quite a bit about it how the trump administration has weaponized this public good and and to its detriment um but the next one though uh again is is i think something that we've touched on but I don't want a a nice concise answer from you on this is it's about the the decline of American soft power and uh you've put it very nicely can America win the ideological war with China if it is perceived to be Merely a normal nation rather than an exceptional one. And we, I feel like we are moving toward normal nation through America first, through, uh, you know, abdicating, I think, a, a lot of, of, of American responsibility, even though we want to cling to kind of hegemonic primacy.
0: Mm. Yes. And it's, it, it, I must say, that's a real tragedy because uh, American soft power, as Professor Joseph Nye. Uh, put it very well, has been a major source of America's strength and influence in the world because countries would line up to support America, not because they were forced to do so, but because they believed in America and because they cherished the American dream and they respected the American people. But then if you have an administration coming along saying, my goal is to make America great again and America first, why should any other country uh, not say, okay, if you put America first, and then I have to put my country first too. That's, that's a logical response. So you go ahead, you put America first, I'll put my country first. And if I put my country first, and if working with China uh, is in the short run more appealing because I get more investment from China, thank you very much, I'm going to uh, work with China. So there's a danger of this. Uh, make uh, uh, of these America first policies because America has squandered an incredible amount of uh, soft power that it has enjoyed. And, and so, for example, when people talk about whether or not China would prefer to see Trump reelected or Biden elected, many people think that, oh, of course, China would want to see Biden elected because he will not be as tough on China as President Trump. But at the same time, President Trump's administration has done so much to lower America's standing in the world, he, he has in the process expanded China's geopolitical space in the world. And so, you know, that's why the loss of American power uh, is significant because it has allowed China to expand its geopolitical space in the world.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Uh, the next set of questions are all kind of interrelated. Uh, one of them uh, we've, we've talked about a bit, and just ironic, we've... You've praised America's universities as centers of of, of excellence, in part because they are homes to such diversity of thought, and they're places where conventional wisdom can be openly challenged. But America's think tanks seem unable to produce that, that kind of diversity of thinking. There's a lot of just plain groupthink that comes out of them. So you ask, are American strategic thinkers capable of developing new analytical frameworks for capturing the essence of competition with China. Uh, what are, are you seeing any change in the time since as you've, you've put this book out? Are you, are there any hopeful signs that this maybe finally, maybe because of COVID-19, uh, that, that, that people are taking this question seriously?
0: Uh, well, I, I, said, uh, I have to give you a very sad answer.
1: <laughs> I was afraid of that. And
0: I would say, uh, you see, Steve Walt has written about this, you know, Professor Steve Walt of Harvard University. And to summarize his answer, uh, I would say his, his argument is uh, follow the money. In some ways, it's an ironic Marxist answer, sure. uh, which is that the think tanks have to pay attention to who their funders are. And a lot of these think tanks are funded by uh, the defense lobby that has a vested interest in uh, America having a threat and therefore spending more on military weapons uh, rather than spending more on helping the American people. And since the bottom 50% in America, sadly, cannot fund any think tanks uh, in Washington, D.C., Uh, their voice uh, is ignored and uh, pushed aside in, in, in these deliberations. So I hope that the more independent think tanks, and there are some, there are some independent ones, let's say the Council on Foreign Relations in New York or Brookings in Washington, D.C. I think these more independent ones should ask themselves a very simple question. When was the last time we put out a big idea that was not within the Washington consensus. Hmm. And sadly, there has been none.
1: Steve Walt and and John Mearsheimer have a history of not only sort of looking at the influence of money in American political life, but also of... Posing very very challenging questions that rankle. Uh, the two of them together, of course, wrote a book about uh, APAC, and uh, that was I, I highly commend that to anyone who's interested in understanding American politics. Um, the 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 another related question was uh, how well American policymakers really understand the Chinese mind. Um, this is part of what a, stra- a think tank really ought to be doing. But um, you make the argument that. The mind of the Chinese leader, of, of, of any Chinese Communist Party member, we've talked about, you know, what he does when he wakes up in the morning as a the head of a province or even of a, uh, a county, uh, but how much of his mind is taken up with, with dialectical materialism and Marxist Leninist theory, and how much of it is actually is, is is shaped by is informed by China's history, by China's civilization. I think that that's that's very well put, and I think it's something that, that uh, are, are, Do you really contend, though, that Americans fail to grasp this? That American thinkers fail to grasp this?
0: Uh, absolutely. Really, I think I, I'm going. I'm going to inject one phrase, which I'm surprised that we neither you nor I have mentioned, because it's the most important phrase to understand the Chinese mind, and that is the century of humiliation. Sure. As you know, the Chinese suffered a century of humiliation from the Opium War in of 1842 when the British seized Chinese territory and forced Chinese to accept opium in return for Chinese silk. And that was followed by more wars, more reparations from China. And then there was, of course, as you know, the horrendous sacking of the Summer Palace in yeah, uh, 1860, 1860 yeah. by yeah. Uh, the British and French troops where... The arts and treasures that the British and French forces destroyed was equivalent to a, a thousand uh, Notre Dame cathedrals you know and so the Chinese have suffered enormously the Japanese invasion the, the uh, Tianjin massacre so the the Chinese suffered for a hundred years you know and the primary goal of the Chinese is to make sure that they never uh, they are never again humiliated. So my one advice to any American is, if you want to understand China, the first step you need to take is to study the century of humiliation. And when you understand the century of humiliation, you understand why the Chinese are so committed and so dedicated to making China strong again, because they do not want a repetition of it. And this, this of course, explains why the Chinese and American minds Behave very differently. For the Chinese mind, is the desire to make sure that China is never humiliated again. Whereas the American mind has experienced a hundred years of triumphalism, of triumphing in every way. So the China, for the American mind, you know, just keep on going on autopilot. We will triumph again. And of yeah. course, once you go on autopilot, you're going to hit a, a wall. So that's why the Chinese and American minds operate in very, very different uh, mental frameworks. And that's what I think my book tries to do, explain why these mental frameworks are so different.
1: Uh, The last of the the 10 big questions that you ask is, uh, you you invoke, I think, a really good metaphor here. U.S. Strategic thinking is informed by the game of chess, where, you know, you, you try to checkmate the opponent to corner his king in as few moves as possible, that there's a, this sort of immediacy to it. Whereas the Chinese strategic mind is 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 conditioned by a Wei Qi, by the game of Go, where you, as you put it, build up assets and tip the game ultimately in your favor. Is the U.S. going to be able to learn this game of Wei Qi?
0: Well, I mean, this, I must say I got this insight from uh, Henry Kissinger. Uh, his book mm. is, you know, On China, uh, begins with that description on how uh, the West plays the game of chess and the Chinese play this game of Weiqi or Go. And, and I think this requires, uh, I mean, this requires the American strategic establishment uh, for a start to stop being impulsive. So, I mean, give you a simple thing. I mean, there's one simple thing. There are a few very, very simple things the United States could do tomorrow. Number one, stop bombing countries. That's all. Stop bombing. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's so simple. Just just do it, okay?
1: What about drone strikes now?
0: <laughs> drone strikes, stop all that. Right. And then stop uh stop insulting China. Just stop. Put a pause button. Stop insulting China. And and then uh, stop uh, doing anything that where you're trying to get short-term advantage. Step back and look at the overall strategic picture mm-hmm. and ask yourself, where does America want to be 10 years from now? And do a calculation. If the U.S. continues with its present strategies, and the Chinese continue with their strategy, present strategies. Will the US be better off ten years from now? Or will China be better off ten years from now? And so I, I'm astonished that no American has asked this question.
1: It's so basic. And yet you leave on a note of hope. You you say that uh despite all of this, despite I mean I I think by the time I was approaching the end of your book, uh I, I had, was almost ready to, to answer the question of the, the book's title, Has China Won?, in the affirmative. Uh, but, you know, I think it's, it's in all of our interests to avoid this, con- or to, to ratchet down this contest. The contest in some form is unavoidable, but to put guardrails around it and to recognize, as you do, some of the things that you call non contradictions Some of the areas where American and Chinese interests actually, uh, if they don't converge necessarily, at least they are compatible can you, uh, 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 maybe the last question here tonight before we move to recommendations, uh, tell us what these are. What are these non-contradictions?
0: Well, as you know, the, uh, as I say, the thesis of my book is a paradoxical one, which is that a major US-China contest is both inevitable, and the inevitable part we see happening already, mm-hmm. and also avoidable. Mm -hmm. So in my last chapter, I I try to focus on explaining why it is avoidable. So, for example, if the primary strategic interest of the United States government uh, is or should be to improve the well-being of the 330 million Americans, and if the primary strategic interest of the Chinese government is to improve the well-being of 1.4 billion Chinese people, then there's no fundamental contradiction between the two they can actually work together. So, for example, uh, yeah, I can tell you when Chinese <laughs> people arrive in JFK uh, airport and then take the Asera train from New York to Boston, the question they ask <laughs> themselves, are we really the first world country? I mean, look at China, look at Beijing airport, look at the fast trains that China has. So, why not cooperate in infrastructure building? Why not? I mean, this it would help the Americans a lot and it would Uh, bring US and China together. So this is something that's inconceivable in today's context. And similarly, you know, if you look at the main challenges, the second point is that uh, you look at the main challenges the world faces today, most of them are common challenges. And as I say, explained in my previous book, The Great Convergence, uh, in the past, when 7.5 billion people live in 193 separate countries, it was as though they were living in 193 separate boats. Uh, today, the world has shrunk, and today, we all of us live in 193 separate cabins on the same boat. Mm. And that's why COVID-19 has spread so far from one cabin to another in the same way, because we're in the same boat. So if we are in the same boat, we should be trying to save the boat and not trying to sink the boat. <laughs> so that's another common interest that uh, U.S. and China have. As you know, I close my book by saying that if the U.S. and China continue fighting while global warming is taking place, future historians will see them as two tribes of apes who continue to fight each other while the forest around them is burning. So instead of putting out the forest fires, they're fighting each other, which is absurd. And we are supposed to be more intelligent than apes. We should be putting out the forest fires first. We should be putting out COVID-19 first, but we are not. So these are, just two examples. And in in other areas too, I see non-contradictions between the U.S. and China. At the end of the day, U.S. and China can live together peacefully with each other if they choose to do so.
1: Kishore Mabubani, what a pleasure to speak with you and at such length. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being so generous with your time. The book, once again, is called Has China Won? And I think uh, it should be plain, it is chock full of very, very big, very bold and quite bracing ideas. I highly recommend that everyone read it. Uh, whether you agree, whether you disagree, I think it's important that we challenge ourselves here. Uh, let's move on now to recommendations. I want to quickly remind listeners first that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. And if you like what this podcast is doing and what the other fine shows in our network are, are up to, uh, one way to help us out is to subscribe to SupChina's Access newsletter. For just $88 a year, you get this excellent newsletter delivered to your inbox every day, every weekday. You get early ad-free access to this podcast. You get discounted admission to our major conferences, which are these days being held online, also to our live podcast recordings and, and all sorts of other goodies. So sign up now, show your your support. Uh, now, on to recommendations. Ordinarily, Jeremy starts us off, but Kishore, do you have something that you would like to recommend to our listeners? A book or?
0: Well, uh, let me say I'm a subscriber. <laughs> Great. I get it delivered to my mailbox.
1: Marvelous, marvelous. But
0: You know, recommendations, I guess you mean uh, for a book. Yeah, for
1: a book. A book would be great.
0: I actually, I had been reading recently, a friend of mine recommended to me a, a book by an American political scientist, historian, Stephen Ambrose. Rise mm, yeah. to Globalism is about American foreign policy from 1938 onwards. And uh, reading that book, uh, after writing my book, by the way, uh, really affected me a great deal because it made me aware that uh, that some of the mistakes that I'm pointing out that America is making today are mistakes that actually America has made before also. Wow. And so Americans should go back. And while there are a lot of success stories that obviously is the larger part of the American narrative, there are also very significant failures, you know like the Vietnam War, for example, which was unnecessary, or the Iraq War, which was unnecessary. So there are, there are lessons that America can learn uh, from the past century. And I think if they follow what the Stephen Ambrose advises, they will begin to think more strategically and more long-term about their interests.
1: Thank you. Uh, that's an excellent recommendation. Stephen Ambrose is somebody I've I've often very much enjoyed. I am going to make a recommendation, a provisional one, because I have not finished this series yet. But it's a podcast series called "Wind of Change" by the New Yorker writer Patrick Radden Keefe, uh, whose books I've I've read it before. I, I recommended one of his books recently. But in it, he tries to chase down a claim which comes from a uh, somebody he he establishes as a fairly reliable source uh that the de facto anthem uh to the collapse of Soviet communism from 89 to 91 was a, a song called The Wind of Change by a a German light kind of light heavy metal band called The Scorpions it th- that song was in fact written <laughs> As a psychological operation, a psyop by the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, so this does have to do with geopolitical contest. Uh, it's a, it's a, it sounds like a ludicrous claim, and then it doesn't when you start considering what was actually going on in the late 1980s and the early 90s. It's, it's always kind of important to me to see heavy metal music and in international politics occasionally intersect. Uh, so I'm enjoying it a lot. It's, 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 um, very well produced and very enjoyable to listen to so uh i i love to hear what 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 listeners think of that sure once again thank you so much for for your time it was such a pleasure to talk to you and uh i I really hope that we can do this again before too long
0: thank you and i hope the sound recording was clear enough
1: oh no absolutely it was great i mean it'll be great the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldkorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at News, And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the China and Africa Podcast, Caixin Seneca Business Brief, which is back and better than ever the pan daily tech buzz china are two shows focused on women new voices and ta for ta and the middle earth podcast on the culture industry in china uh the china marketing podcast is rare and it's excellent podcast and definitely check out strangers in china which wrapped its first season and will be back this fall watch this space for announcements of new network shows coming and thank you for listening we will see you next week take care